uh, get to the text this morning, there's a couple things I'd like to say. The first of which is to thank you for the privilege of allowing me to serve you all as an elder. It's not something that I take lightly, and I feel the weight of the office to which you have appointed me. You know, I've had an interesting and winding road full of surprises to get to this point, but I'm absolutely convinced that it is of the Lord. And I'm absolutely convinced also that my on my own, I am not worthy of the office within which you have placed me, because I know the kind of man I am and the evil that lies in my heart. But, thankfully, we have a God who has promised to wash us whiter than snow and rescues us from this body of death. The second thing I'd like to say is actually more of an object lesson. Our scripture this morning has quite a few object lessons, and this one I learned from my father. See, when my dad was installed as a pastor, I was only seven years old. I don't remember his sermon, but what he did has stuck with me to this day. During that that time, he took a mirror and he put the mirror, fixed it onto the podium, and he said it was to remind him and the congregation that every message he spoke was just as much to him as it was to them. I'd like to do the same thing this morning. I'm not here preaching to you. I'm here preaching to us. Now, please go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Because today, we have the privilege of studying a truly exceptional passage of Scripture. It's exceptional because we clearly see a multitude of the attributes of God on full display. In this passage, we will see the sovereignty of God in both predicting and directing world events. We'll see the justice of God in not allowing evil to go unchecked. We will see the faithfulness of God in not abandoning his people. And ultimately, we will see the love of God that will be manifested in Jesus the Christ. And as if the attributes of God were not enough, this passage also contains one of the most famous prophecies of the Old Testament and is so rich in biblical theology that you are going to leave today even more in awe of the incredible God that we worship. So, without further ado, starting with chapter 7, verse 1. God's word says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. Starting with the first verse, we are reminded that Isaiah was a prophet within a historical context and that understanding the period of time in which these events take place is critical for a faithful exposition. Thankfully, Scripture has provided the context of these specific events in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17, as well as 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Now, as we're already covering a chapter and a half this morning, we don't have time to read those chapters. That's your job this week, and it'll be worth it, I promise. But to summarize what happens in those chapters, we're about 240 years from King David, and the original Israel is now two different kingdoms, 
the king of Judah, or the southern kingdom, at this time is King Ahaz. We learn in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that he was a tremendously evil king. He constructed all sorts of idols and commanded the people to worship them. He sought alliances with the enemies of God. And he even burned his own son as an offering to pagan idols. Isaiah also tells us here that that Pekah was the king of the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel or Ephraim. And the capital of that kingdom was Samaria. The capital of Judah was Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 15, we learn that Pekah was also an evil king who made an alliance with the regional power of that day, Syria. And the king of Syria was Rezin. So we're told in verse 1 that Rezin and Pekah decide that together they are going to attack Judah and go after the capital city, Jerusalem, to conquer it. What was Ahaz's response? Well, picking up in verse 2, we see that when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Ahaz was terrified. It says that his heart shook, and not just Ahaz, but the entire country with him. See, on paper, Ahaz knew he was not a match for these two enemies. But what's interesting is that Isaiah explicitly calls out Ahaz's lineage here as the house of David. See, Ahaz is a direct descendant of the great King David. And I believe that this reference to David was absolutely intentional on the part of Isaiah. He's inviting the reader to remember both God's covenant with David, where he tells him in 2 Samuel 7 that David's throne will be established forever, but also the heart of David, who said in Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Is that the response we see from Ahaz? The one who has the privilege of carrying on the legacy of David and the promises of God to stand on. No, we instead see a response of fear, of doubt, and of unbelief. So, starting in verse 3, Isaiah is sent by Yahweh to confront Ahaz. The message to Ahaz is threefold. The first is an object lesson through Isaiah's son, who God commanded Isaiah to take with them, and whose name was Shear Jeshub. Now, if you've read the footnote in your Bible you'll see that that name means a remnant shall return. To provide a little more context, we need to look back at 2 Chronicles chapter 28. There, we learn that because of Ahaz's wickedness, in verse 5, it says that the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with a great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, 
the God of their fathers. And Zikri, a mighty man from Ephraim, killed Masiah, the king's son, and Azrikam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. See, Ahaz had already suffered tremendously at the hands of these northern of this northern kingdom because of his unfaithfulness to God. So, by having Isaiah take his son, whose name meant a remnant shall return, God was telling Ahaz, who note here lost a son, that neither the house of David nor your people are going to be totally destroyed by this. Now, the second part of this message to, from Isaiah to Ahaz is encouragement. We see in verse 4, And say to him, that is Ahaz, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. God is saying, Don't be afraid of the fierce anger of these two kings who are just smoldering stumps. But learn from this judgment and be afraid of me and my anger because I am the one whose fire came down from heaven and consumed Mount Sinai in the desert and just sent these kings to humble you. But I control them and they are done. To further emphasize his point, God states that the plans of these two enemy kings will not come to fruition. Why is that? Because they are ultimately the seed of the serpent, and the time has come to crush them. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. There, God says, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. To realize the weight of what God is saying here, we have to hearken back to Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, where God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but he sh- and you shall bruise his heel. Here in Isaiah, we see direct references to the heads of the enemies of God's people. And what's going to happen to them? They're going to be shattered. They're going to be crushed. God is reminding Ahaz that these two countries are the offspring of the serpent, enemies of God, and thus they will be crushed. But just because Ahaz is a direct descendant of David, he is not guaranteed to be the offspring of the woman or the people of God. Why? Because the people of God are defined by faith, not blood, as we see in verse 9. Notice in verse 8 that only Ephraim is actually directly referenced as being shattered. Ephraimites were blood Israelites, blood descendants of Abraham, people of the promise. But they revolted against God. See, they didn't just rebel against the house of the David when they broke off from the southern kingdom. They rebelled against God by setting up their own idols in Samaria. Thus, they were no longer counted as people of God or offspring of the woman, but as enemies of God, offspring of the serpent. God is now reminding Ahaz that if he does not have faith, he will fall just like Ephraim will fall, despite being a descendant of Abraham. 
So Ahaz here has been encouraged and confronted. Now we see God requiring him to make a choice in verses 10 and 11. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Yahweh, the great I am, is asking Ahaz what sign he wants from God. Ahaz's response is in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now what's going on here? Why is God instructing Ahaz to ask for a sign And when Ahaz refuses, why is that a bad decision? I mean, doesn't Deuteronomy 6.16 say not to test the Lord? And isn't that one of the scriptures that Jesus quoted when he rebuked the temptations of the devil? We can read about it in Luke 4. So why was it wrong for Ahaz here? Well, Matye, in his commentary on Isaiah, states that the sin of testing God is essentially the sin of unbelief that says, I will not believe unless God so proves himself. But when the command to ask for a sign comes from God, to refuse indicates, I do not, nor do I wish to believe. Ahaz did not believe. Thus, he cloaked his unbelief in a veneer of piety. By invoking Sheol and heaven, God was ready in the words of Matye, to move heaven and earth. But Ahaz refused. Contrast this with Hezekiah, who in 2 Kings chapter 20 and Isaiah 38 asked God to literally move earth by making it spin the opposite way as a sign for his healing. Ahaz's refusal here to to believe in God is really the turning point of our entire passage. And some commentators say, the turning point of the entire Davidic line, the rejection of Yahweh by Ahaz. In Second Kings and Second Chronicles, we see that not only does Ahaz reject God, but instead he turns to the pagan kingdom of Assyria for help. And Ahaz didn't just turn to Assyria. He built an altar to the Assyrian God that replaced the altar to the Lord God in the Holy Temple. He utterly rejected Yahweh. Now, don't get me wrong. The alliance to Assyria made sense from a strictly human standpoint. I mean, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Well, that's Assyria. Not only was Assyria my enemy's enemy, but, man, they were big and they were strong. But they were nothing compared to God. See, what Ahaz failed to realize is that Pekah and Rezin, the enemy kings, were not his problem. God was going to take care of them. His problem was unbelief and refusal to trust in Yahweh. Ahaz needed deliverance from his unbelief, and God was giving him that opportunity by commanding him to ask for a sign, but Ahaz didn't take it. We also need deliverance from our unbelief, because at the heart of disobedience, we find unbelief. It's not believing that God is enough. Ahaz did not believe that God could, and thus he did not obey God and ask for a sign. But how many of us are like that? 
Now we know that God has called us to do something, but we don't because we're not sure that God is going to come through. Ahaz feigned piety to cloak his unbelief, and we often feign piety to cloak our unbelief. We don't share our faith with others when God gives us opportunities. We instead say, well, we're not called to judge, and I wouldn't want to offend them and turn them away from Christianity. It's unbelief. Or perhaps you know that God has called you to some act of service for his kingdom, like getting involved more in ministry of this church or another ministry or the foreign mission field or foster care or, you know, I don't know what it is. But we say, oh, God, I can't do that. I mean, you don't want me to neglect my other command- commitments, do you? I mean, that's, that's unbelief. Now, I'm not here today to lay unnecessary guilt on you. But from examination of my own life, there are many areas in which I flat out do not believe any deliverance from my unbelief. So what do we do? We'll start with prayer. Ask God to overcome your unbelief. Be honest about your lack of your willingness to trust him in it and ask him to strengthen you. And he will. And then take that step of faith. But because of Ahaz's refusal, Looking back at our scripture, God invokes the legacy of the house of David in his condemnation of Ahaz and says, you don't want to ask for a sign? Fine, I'm going to give you a sign. The sign of the son named Emmanuel. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is perhaps one of the most famous prophecies from all of Scripture because we know that it relates to Jesus. It's also the first one that's directly referenced in the New Testament. So in unpacking this, let's begin by exploring first who this child born of a virgin is that God is talking about. Now, there are quite a few opinions on this, and I'm only going to present three and then share which one I believe to be the most likely. The first opinion or option out there is that there was no literal child in Ahaz's or Isaiah's day, but that it was only referring to Christ as quoted by Matthew. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But that it only referred to Christ and not an actual child during Ahaz's time, as the commentator Oswald mentions, does not really make sense within the context of these few verses because the context seems to point to a visible sign that Ahaz needs to ask to, ask to hang his hat on. So in response, or reply, it seems that God would want to give a visible sign to Ahaz. So the second option is that Emmanuel here is an actual child, born of a virgin. Now don't think of this like Jesus was born of a literal virgin, but rather as it would have meant to the readers of Isaiah's day. And that is the way that many kids come into the world, right? A woman, a virgin, marries, conceives, and has a kid, right? That's what it implies there. But whose child? Well, some say it's a future child of King Ahaz. You say, well, why would Ahaz, who is not following God, name his child Emmanuel or God with us? Well, I'm not really sure, but in 2 Kings, we do see that one of Ahaz's sons who was killed in battle was named Masiah, or which means the work of Jehovah. 
So Ahaz was not against naming or referencing God with his kids' names. It's just that apparently these names didn't really mean anything for him. So as opposed to a child of Ahaz, some others say it's a future child of Isaiah, either a child separate from Shear Jeshub, which we just studied earlier, and also separate from another one of Isaiah's children that we'll read in a minute in chapter 8, or perhaps it's the same child that's mentioned in chapter 8. Now, there are actually convincing reasons for both of those options that we're not going to get into, but I'd be happy to share afterwards if you're curious. Now, the third option as to who this child is, and one that I believe to be true, is that it's both, in that this prophecy is fulfilled by Christ as well as by an actual child that Ahaz would know, whether one of his, one of Isaiah's, or, or another one. Now, personally, I think that Emmanuel was a child of Ahaz. We see in Second Kings that, true to his word, God did deliver Jerusalem and did not allow Syria and Israel to conquer it. I think that Ahaz, instead of interpreting that deliverance as God's mercy and opportunity to repent, took that deliverance as God's approval and thought, God's with us. And I also think that Emmanuel being born to the house of David would foreshadow the Emmanuel, Jesus, being born of the house and line of David. Now again, those are my thoughts. I could be completely wrong. But that's the child. Now let's look at his name. As we said previously, the name Emmanuel means God with us. But Ahaz rejected God. So that sounds like a strange name to invoke during judgment. God with us, rather, appears to be rather comforting, right? Well, not necessarily, because it depends on if you're the offspring of the woman or the offspring of the serpent. Emmanuel was to represent the offspring of the woman or God's people, the people whom God is with. Note the reference to the knowledge of right and wrong regarding this child. That does, that, that, that serves to give a reference uh, or a time frame as to when these events will take place, but it's also supposed to point us back to the garden the same way verses 7 through 9 point us back to the garden. Because in the garden, the woman and her offspring gained what? The knowledge of good and evil. This child will know how to refuse evil and choose good, thus of the offspring of the woman, and thus God with us. And as we've already established, as the offspring of the serpent, Israel and Samaria will be crushed. So this child, as Emmanuel, a representative of the seed of the woman, would be a sign for the destruction of these countries. Before he was very old, Syria and Israel would be defeated. And we read in Second Kings that they were by Assyria. But because Ahaz and the people with him chose to join and put their trust in the offspring of the serpent, Assyria, they would be judged along with them. Verse 17, we read that the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah the king of Assyria. Verses 18 through 25 then go on to describe this judgment in more detail. Syria and Israel are, were not going to be destroyed, not because, or were going to be destroyed, not because Assyria was stronger and more powerful, 
but because they chose to become the enemies of God. The solution then for Ahaz would not be to align himself with Assyria, who would eventually face its judgment, but to truly be the people of God, the people of faith, the people who could say, God with us. But sadly, Ahaz did not. The seed of the serpent is no less active today than it was then. And we need deliverance from our enemy as well. But I fear that all too often, like Ahaz, we turn to what makes sense from a human standpoint to defeat this enemy, especially strength and power. Our deliverance from the enemy is not going to be found in Washington, D.C. or Richmond. Now, I know we all agree with that statement, but do we? I mean, I think too often that answer is no, because I see Christians, myself included, compromising our faith to serve a political end, because we think that's where the answer lies. See, I see Christians holding politicians of different political parties to different ethical and moral standards, and even justifying outrageous behavior because they believe that the ends justify the means. Do Christians have a place in our government? Absolutely. And are Christian ethics important for a democratic society to to, to thrive? I truly believe that. But if we cross any of these lines, I'd argue that our involvement in politics has turned to trust in an attempt to, to defeat the enemy through sheer power. For instance, the line of feeling that we must do whatever is necessary and tolerate whomever necessary to regain control politically. The line of spending more time reading and keeping up with political news than you do the word of God. The line of allowing the practice and promotion of a certain aspect of a political view to make you a hypocrite with regards to your faith. The line of complaining about your political leaders, but not praying for them. I know it's probably not a good idea to bring up politics on my first Sunday as an elder, but you got to be true to the text. And you see Isaiah, or you see Ahaz turning to political solutions for his problem. We need deliverance from our enemy, and we know that that eventual deliverance will come because Jesus will return once and for all, crushing Satan and his followers. Let's not feel like we have to make that happen on our own, especially if it requires us to compromise who we are as children of God. Our job is to trust him and remain faithful first and foremost. So where were we? Verses 18 through 25. So I've already mentioned that verses 18 through 25 are details of the judgment against Ahaz and Judah. We're not going to go in and read all of them, but I would like to point out two things. First, verse 20, the reference to shaving. This is a sign of humiliation. God was going to humble his people for not trusting in him. Second, in verses 21 through 24, we see that there's going to be more more animals than people in the land, and the food of the people is going to be curds and honey, which is not the same as milk and honey, but rather, as one commentator mentions, curds and honey is the food of poverty. This land is going to experience a tremendous judgment because of their lack of faith in God. 
Now we arrive in chapter 8 and another child. Starting with verse 1, we see that then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, of all the children we've looked at so far, this one, in my opinion, has the strangest name. I mean, imagine the amount of times he had to correct his teachers in school when they were pronouncing his name. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Or, if you have a New King James Version, which I like, this, this, this wording better, hasten the spoil, hasten the booty. God is again here declaring what Assyria is going to do to Israel and and Syria. He's going to do it quickly. And this is the third time in this passage that we've seen a predictive prophecy against Syria and Israel. Why so many? Well, I think it was to drive home the point to King Ahaz that though he is going to see Assyria doing this, destroying his enemies... It's ultimately God calling the shots. Assyria is not doing this because they are bigger and stronger, but because God is bringing judgment on these two other nations. In fact, later on in Isaiah, as we continue the study, we will see Isaiah prophesy against Assyria. Their judgment will come as well. When we see events unfold around us that seem to contradict the fact that God is in control, such as nearly 1,700 abortions a day, or teachers losing their jobs for refusing biblical gender norms, or Christians being slaughtered in Africa for their faith. We would do well to remember these passages. God's still in control. Nothing is out of his reach. In chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, we again see the judgment of Emmanuel on Judah by Assyria because of their rejection of God, in verse 6. And then it is again connected to the judgment of Syria and Israel, in verses 7 through 8, and tied directly to Emmanuel, in verses 8 through 10. Now again, we're limited on time this morning, but with what we've covered so far, you now have the ability to go dig in and examine these verses on your own to see exactly what Isaiah is saying here. Just follow the themes that we've talked about so far. Now, it's worth noting that all of the events prophesied here in this passage by Isaiah regarding the deliverance of Jerusalem and the deliverance of Jerusalem and Judah from Syria and Israel, as well as the destruction of Syria and Israel by Assyria and the eventual judgment of Judah by Assyria take place exactly as he said. Again, read the passages from 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. See, these were not empty promises from God. God was true to his word. So, the question still remains, that if the Lord fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah, including 
the passages we saw regarding the child Emmanuel in the Old Testament, why does Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 22, say that the virgin conception of Jesus by Mary took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken? And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Well, it's because Jesus also fulfilled that prophecy, and Jesus did it more completely. See, in biblical theology terms, that's called typological fulfillment. And that's not the same as predictive fulfillment. Predictive fulfillment is where in Micah 5.2, they prophesy that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Typological fulfillment, rather, involves correspondence to an escalation of previous scripture. In other words, typological fulfillment is further and more complete fulfillment of scripture that has already been fulfilled. Just consider consider this 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 passage. The correspondence. Okay, both in Herod's or, or both Herod in Jesus' day and Ahaz in Isaiah's day were kings who did not trust in Yahweh. And in both cases, there was a threat from a foreign army, Syria and Israel for Ahaz, and the Romans for Herod. But now consider the escalation. That is how this prof- or Jesus fulfills this prophecy more so than what was filled, fulfilled in the Old Testament. See, in Matthew, or in Isaiah, we have a virgin who was a virgin but conceived normally. In Matthew, it's a virgin who conceived by the power of God and remained a literal virgin. In Isaiah, we had a human child named Emmanuel. In Matthew, it is literally Emmanuel, God's son with us. In Isaiah, Emmanuel is representative of offspring of the woman. In Matthew, Emmanuel is the ultimate fulfillment of the offspring of the woman who would himself crush Satan or the serpent's head. That's why Matthew can say that the scripture is fulfilled by Jesus. And it is with that last point that we also see escalation with respect to why Jesus came. Matthew connects, if you go back and read this in Matthew chapter 1, but Matthew connects Jesus saving his people from his sins to this passage of scripture in Isaiah. The first Emmanuel was a sign of judgment of sin because the offspring of the woman, the people of God, had chosen to become the offspring of the serpent. But in Matthew, Jesus, as Emmanuel, comes to bring forgiveness for the sins of his people, the offspring of the woman. See, of all that we need to be delivered from, sin is the most important. We talked about unbelief and we talked about the enemy But our sin separates us from God. In Romans, Paul tells us that this sin, when unatoned for, makes us enemies of God. Seeds of the serpent. And we've seen in this passage from Isaiah what happens to the enemies of God. Destruction, annihilation, and judgment. And if that's not bad enough, we cannot atone for our sins. Either through good works or through sacrificing animals. We need deliverance. But thankfully, we learn that that's why Jesus, Emmanuel, came to us to save his people from their sins. Jesus would go on to live a perfect life and die a perfect death, thus atoning for our sins. He would then rise from the dead, demonstrating his power over death. 
And the result in 1 Peter 2.24 is that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross that we might die to sin but live for righteousness. We can become the people of God and have God with us because of the deliverance Jesus gives us. So the question is, have you accepted that deliverance? Or are you still trusting in your good works? Or your religion? Or the fact that you're not as bad as that guy? Like Assyria, none of these ways of dealing, or like turning to Assyria, none of these ways of dealing with your sin will deliver, but will ultimately let you down. Only God can save So for those of us who have already accepted that deliverance, our temptation can still be to revert back to other means for salvation. Continually place your trust in Jesus for your salvation. And for those of you who have not accepted this deliverance, I take no joy in saying this, but you will be judged. But you don't have to be. See, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Accept the deliverance he, Emmanuel, provides today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is an honor to be able to study the words that have been recorded by Isaiah roughly 2,700 years ago. Lord, thank you for being a God who remains faithful despite us being unfaithful to you. Lord, we see how you worked and brought judgment on Syria and Israel. Lord, how how Ahaz sinned when he turned from trusting you to put his trust in Assyria. Lord, we pray that, that we would not be like that this morning. God, that, that we would realize that you are the only one worthy of putting our trust in. Lord, we recognize that so often we're filled with unbelief. But Lord, in the midst of our unbelief, you come to us and invite us to believe. Lord, I pray that we would accept that invitation today, that we would believe. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus who came as Emmanuel to deliver us from our sins. Lord, may we never take lightly what sin does to us and to our relationship with you. Lord, we see in this passage that the people's sin required judgment and destruction because you're perfect, and that's what you've commanded. Lord, we recognize that that's not something we can achieve on our own, but through Jesus, who saved us from our sins. Lord, we thank you for Jesus today. And as we go out from here, we pray that, that you would be our trust. Lord, that we would place our trust in you, in Yahweh, the great I am. And Lord, that, that you would deliver us from the enemy, from our unbelief, and ultimately from sin. It's in Jesus' name, the Emmanuel, that we pray. Amen. I think what we experienced this morning is beautiful. With 
the whole worship service kind of resonating in our minds from beginning to end, let's just step back for just a moment and look at what we all experience today and understand that this is God's design for us. A local church, a very ordinary but faithful elder, the whole council of God, not just the easy parts, not just the fun parts, but the whole council of the Word of God and the glory of Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know all of the things that are going on in every other church in our town, in our nation, and around the world, but I can just tell you that a local church, ordinary faithful elders, the whole counsel of God, and the glory and gospel of Jesus Christ is what God designed for the good of our souls. And I'm glad you're here. And I hope you will continue to commit yourself to that. We have an assignment. Let's go back to this tough text that, Alan, you did a great job exposing the meaning of it. But there's so much there that we need to dig more for ourselves and see how the Son of God can be our trust so that we don't follow in Ahaz's footsteps. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with all of us. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Take just a moment to respond to God in a prayer from what we've heard together. And when you hear the music, we'll be dismissed.